This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, Mumio Bujamal, The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, Activism from Best of the Left, and the Tom Hartman Program. And a quick warning that we will be discussing the fact that innocent people are put to death in this country, but if you're white, you can relax because it probably won't happen to you. Now, back in 1976, uh, of course, they restarted the death penalty regime, and uh, in Florida, they've uh, taken advantage of that uh, to do a significant number of executions, 84 to be exact. And uh, there's one interesting fact about that that might put into question how they adjudicate the death penalty and how they carry it out. Well, it turns out that in the state of Florida, no white person has ever been executed for killing an African-American. Now, okay, you look at that by itself, you might say, look, there's a lot of different states. Could be just a coincidence that that's how Florida came out. And maybe in other states, they lean more in the direction of a lot of white people that killed black people, because there's plenty of that in the country, get executed. No. You don't really find that evidence anywhere. Uh, in fact, you find more evidence of bias in how the death penalty is executed in different states. For example, in Alabama. 60% of black death row inmates were convicted of murdering a white person. Well, okay, now this is where a lot of conservatives would say, yeah, but that probably happens so often and so overwhelmingly that that's why you have the number 60%. So why don't you give us proper context? Well, I'm glad you asked. So how often did it happen? 6% of murders in Alabama involved black defendants and white victims. But 60% of black death row inmates were convicted of murdering a white person. Hmm. Those numbers seem a little disproportionate. Okay, so well, we got Florida and Alabama. How about Louisiana? The death sentence in Louisiana is 97% more likely in murder cases where the victim is white. So, now a lot of people know that black defendants wind up disproportionately higher chance of being on death row. Now we know that, and that's a problem with the death penalty because we realize that uh, perhaps certain groups have been targeted more. And in fact, a lot of the people who are on death row, who happen to be African-American, later were uh, found out to be innocent. In fact, that just happened last week. We did the story of a guy who was on death row for 30 years. He was black. He was the gardener for, one, uh, for somebody who had been killed. And it turned out, well, not only was it two white brothers who had done it, and not the black gardener, but that the prosecutors hid evidence to that effect. And they kept them on death row for 30 years anyway. So you've got those stories. You've got the numbers, right? Now, the other thing that you have is, if you kill a black guy, well, are you really going to get the death penalty? Well, it turns out it's a lot less likely. If you kill a white guy, you better watch out. Because that's when you're very likely to get the death penalty. So is there some, perhaps, racial injustice in how we mete out the death penalty? let alone the fact that we shouldn't have it in the first place, because if we're letting out people from death row, because it turns out we were making mistake after mistake, and we've now let out dozens of people that were on death row, let alone that egregious fact which should end the death penalty in and of itself, if you're doing it on the basis of the skin of your color, or the color of your skin, I should say, that's another layer of injustice. When are we going to stop this ridiculous death penalty, which is clearly biased and given out all the time to the wrong people across the country?
There's a new study out which breaks down the evolution of support and opposition to the death penalty. And not surprising to much of our audience, but maybe surprising to, to some people who haven't seen the numbers, if you support the death penalty, you are disproportionately likely to be white and not a minority, and also a white male, interestingly enough. According to a 2013 Pew Research Center survey, 55% of adults say that they favor the death penalty for someone who is convicted of murder, and this is uh, compared to 37%, which is a minority but a significant number who oppose the practice. A majority of adults still support the death penalty. There's no denying that at all. And even though support for the death penalty has declined over the years from its high sometime in the 70s, we still have a majority who say, I'm okay with the death penalty. What's interesting is when we break this down in terms of race, there is a huge racial disparity when we look at uh, the, the death penalty. And 63% of America's white population supports capital punishment, but only 36% of black people and 40% of Hispanics do. Right-wing racists are going to respond to this clip, and we know what they're going to say. They're going to say, well, yeah, black people and Hispanic people just are always guilty of more crimes, so of course they're against the death penalty because they don't want it for themselves. Of course, statistics tell us. Statistics can be inconvenient. Statistics tell us that the death penalty is not a deterrent to crime. So the idea that for their own personal gain, black and Hispanic people don't want the death penalty so that they'll go out and commit more crimes is a factually bankrupt idea. What it does shed light into and should really alarm us about is something I've been talking about for years on this program, which is that the death penalty is disproportionately applied to minority uh, uh, criminals relative to white criminals. And when we look at uh, the, the, the numbers, it is disproportionately applied not only to uh, Hispanic and black criminals, it is disproportionately applied when the victims are white. So I'm not really surprised by these numbers, Lewis. I think that the right wing, unfortunately, is going to seize on them as meaning something or representing something that they don't. Right. I think it's really just a sign of tradition more than anything, right? Uh, if it's been a part of the culture for so long and uh, the minorities are newer to the culture and perhaps not as not exposed to it um, in the countries they came from, you know, their their parents weren't, their grandparents weren't, Maybe it's it's just that simple. Yeah, it it that's kind of the definition of conservatism, right? Keep doing things the way we've been doing them solely because that's the way we've been doing them. And if you are white, rich, and from the north of this country, you are disproportionately, exponentially less likely to ever face the death penalty than if you are black, poor, and from the south, assuming the same crime. La remember that, ladies and gentlemen, assuming the same crime. This encourages, uh, well, it's, it goes along all of the reasons that we oppose the death penalty, right? It encourages a system of revenge. It is expensive to administer. It does not deter crime. It's unfairly applied. I, I, I don't know, Lewis. I mean, 18 states have already abolished the death penalty. We've made the case pretty clearly here. No other countries at our level of development are still utilizing this absurd practice. And I think that it is actually a winnable battle 
to eliminate the death penalty from this country altogether. 18 states is no small number. Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like Can you this be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, is, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What, do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious... I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Execution in Oklahoma. He tossed, he turned. He moaned, he burned. Clayton Lockett, on the death gurney of Oklahoma's Department of Corrections, spoke words, struggled, and reportedly kicked his legs for 43 minutes after a toxic cocktail was administered to him to kill him. That cocktail? An experimental mix of chemicals designed to stop his respiration, still his heart, and do so relatively painlessly, failed to do so as he apparently never lost consciousness. Some 10 minutes after the execution was called off, Lockett's heart went into arrest a heart attack, and he left this life. American death states are experimenting with various mixes because international chemical companies are now refusing to service the U.S. death penalty machine. Left to their own resources, they're literally experimenting. And as the Lockett execution has demonstrated, they are doing it badly. The American way of death is sloppy, their way bears an uncanny resemblance to torture, for in Lockett's case, his veins reportedly burst from the pressure of the lethal IV. The U.S. death penalty system is torture, the psychological torture of sustained isolation in solitary confinement. And then, after the soul is dead, the poisoning of the body, the American way of death, from imprisoned nations. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. I thought I'd seen it all until she showed me the American way. find yourself in Huntsville, Texas, and sadly, uh, you need to get yourself to the hospital, you have a number of options in Huntsville. There is the Huntsville Memorial Hospital. Uh, there's the Memorial Herman Hospital, also in Huntsville. There's the Conroe Regional Medical Center, also in Huntsville. Uh, for specialty oncology care, you can also go to the Sam Houston Cancer Center in Huntsville. There's a number of hospitals in Huntsville, Texas. There is not, however, something called the Huntsville Unit Hospital in Huntsville, Texas, although sometimes the state of Texas lies and says there is. 
According to a lawsuit filed this past fall, Texas sent a purchase order to a company called Pharmacy Innovations to try to buy a number of drugs that the state of Texas wanted to use to inject into prisoners in order to kill them. And on the purchase order to this pharmacy, they said the entity that was requesting the drugs was, quote, the Huntsville Unit Hospital. Which sounds nice, right? Except what they mean is the Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville, also sometimes known as the Huntsville Unit, which is not a hospital. The prison had a hospital long ago, apparently, but that hospital has not existed since something like 1983. When this pharmacy, Pharmacy Innovations, found out where they had really sent their drugs in response to this purchase order, when they found out that it wasn't to a hospital, when they figured out what that meant about how these drugs were going to be used, the company reportedly was shocked. They were, quote, completely unaware that the drugs were purchased with the intent to use them for lethal injections. But ha-ha, Texas apparently fooled that company into sending the prison system some midazolam and some hydromorphone. But when the state of Texas tried to pull that same trick again with that same company to get them to send another drug, to send them some pentobarbital, by that point, the company had caught on to what Texas was doing and lying about, and the company would not send them any more drugs. Lethal injection, uh, deliberately misusing pharmaceuticals in order to kill people uh, through IV lines and needles, it has never been a trouble-free way of killing people. Even before the current utter chaos around what drugs are being used for these kinds of executions, there have been mishaps in the past. Uh, the most famous one in Texas, which is, of course is our state that kills people more enthusiastically than any other state in the country. Uh, the most famous failure before this current round of systemic, systemic failure uh, was probably the case in Texas in December 1988, when the IV line that was attached to the needle going into the prisoner's arm, uh, the line came loose. And it didn't just come loose and start dripping. It was almost like it was pressurized. The line apparently flew all around the room and started spraying the lethal injection chemicals across the execution chamber and at the assembled witnesses. That was in December 1988. That got a mention today in this front page New York Times article that called Texas the gold standard for executions in this country. Beyond the occasional burst line and botched procedure like that, though, things started going wrong with lethal injection systemically across the country everywhere they do them just a couple of years ago. Because that's when the supply started to dry up of the drugs that more than two dozen states were using in their lethal injection protocols. First, the supply of the main drug dried up. That was a drug called sodium thiopental. Uh, then the supply started to dry up of a different drug called pentobarbital, which a lot of states had turned to as their substitute when sodium pentobarbital went away. Since then, though, it has, it has just been chaos in terms of the drugs. I mean, whether or not you are for the death penalty or against the death penalty or neither, technically speaking, logistically speaking, the death penalty is in total disarray in this country. The states are just ad-libbing, they're riffing, they're making it up as they go along. Lethal injection is a medicalized way of killing people, but it is not a medical procedure. So there's no technically correct way to do it. What we have learned over these last couple of years, though, is that there are lots of technically incorrect ways to do it. In the U.S. Constitution, there's a ban on cruel and unusual punishment. And the Supreme Court, with specific regard to lethal injection, says any undue risk of severe pain associated with one of these executions makes it unconstitutional, would mean that it would violate the Eighth Amendment. So no state can legally execute somebody in this country if to do so is to call that person an undue risk, cause that person an undue risk of extreme pain. 
honestly, just from observing what's been happening over the last couple of years, that seems to be happening all the time now. For example, when Texas tried to trick that pharmacy into sending them drugs by saying they were a hospital when really they were a prison, the drugs they reportedly did obtain that way by deceit from that pharmacy were a combination of a sedative and a painkiller. One of them called midazolam and one of them called hydromorphone. Despite the objections of the pharmacy, Texas never sent those drugs back and they still say they have those drugs around. They're keeping them in the Texas state prison system. They say that they're basically reserve the right to use those two drugs in combination to kill prisoners. The problem is that in January, Ohio decided to become the first place in the country to use that combination of drugs to kill someone. You might have heard about how that went. It took more than 25 minutes for the man to die after they injected him. 25 minutes of him gasping for air and snorting and writhing. So yeah, Texas has that drug combo on hand, but would you like to be second to use it after that 26 minutes in Ohio got headlines nationwide? So, th so they can't necessarily use their first, first choice of drug combinations because that would include sodium thiopental and you can't get that anywhere anymore. They can't use their second choice of drug combinations because you can't get the pentobarbital anymore. States inventing whole new combinations of drugs that have never been tried before, that's also turning out to be problematic. And so some states have tried to basically reverse engineer what they used to have access to. Pentobarbital is one of the drugs that states used to have access to. They used to buy it from the manufacturer for executions. That's before the Danish company that made it decided that they really didn't want their drug to be used for executions anymore. When they eventually sold the rights to make that drug to an American company a couple of years ago, they made it a condition of the sale that the new manufacturer of that drug would never sell it to states to use for executions. The states, however, would very much like to use that drug for executions. So since they can't get it from the manufacturer, and any of it that was manufactured before this ban went in place is now expired, they've now turned to compounding pharmacies. Compounding pharmacies will make up small batches of drugs to order. South Dakota was the first state to kill somebody using pentobarbital that had been cooked up for them at a compounding pharmacy. The prisoner was supposed to be unconscious when he died, but he cleared his throat and he gasped for air. He turned blue and then he turned purple. His heart continued to beat for 10 minutes after he stopped breathing. About 10 minutes in the execution, his face turned pale. Um, and then it kind of gradually um, changed colors until um, um, he was purple by the time the execution was over. Mm -hmm. And his eyes, his eyes remained open uh, from, from the time of the last breath that we heard. Um, well, until the end, uh, the assistant coroner attempted to close his eyes at one point, and they, uh, they popped back open. That was October 2012. That was the first time a state killed somebody using pentobarbital that had been made for them at a compounding pharmacy. In Oklahoma in January, they tried again. They used pentobarbital that had been made for them at a compounding pharmacy. Again, there were problems. Uh, the man they were killing gave what he thought was his final statement. They asked for his last words, and he said he wanted his last words to be this. I love everybody. I love the world. Love my daughters for me. I'm going to miss you always. Even though he said that was his last statement, those did not end up being his last words on earth because they injected him with the pentobarbital that they got at the compounding pharmacy and then two more drugs. And then in the midst of that injection process, what he ended up saying as his actual last words were, 
I feel my whole body burning. So that was in January. Then in April, in Texas, another lethal injection performed with pentobarbital that they got from a compounding pharmacy. It's the only way you can get it now. The man was asked for his last words. He said his final statement would be, I would like to remind my children once again, I love them all. Everything's going to be okay. I love you all. I love my children. I am at peace. He thought that would be his last words. But once again, they started injecting him with pentobarbital that they got from a compounding pharmacy. Turns out that what he thought was his final statement was not his final statement. His real last words ended up being, it does kind of burn. And then two weeks later, after that, was the botched execution in Oklahoma. That botched execution in Oklahoma, which got so much attention, that one did not use pentobarbital. They used an experimental combination of three other drugs that had only been used once before, but in very different dosages uh, in Florida. In the Oklahoma case, they spent a long time trying to find a vein. Uh, they tried to set up an IV line, apparently into the femoral vein in the groin area. Somehow, we don't yet know how, it did not work as intended. After the man was pronounced unconscious, uh, he clearly, to witnesses, became conscious again. Uh, he was seen to be sort of kicking and straining against his restraints. He was speaking at one point, moving his head. He was supposed to be unconscious. He was not. Witnesses said he appeared to be in great pain. Oklahoma Department of Corrections says they believed they had not gotten enough drugs into the man to kill him by the time they had run out of drugs. And the director of the Department of Corrections then tried to call the execution off, tried to stop it after it had already been started. Ultimately, they say the man died of a heart attack more than 40 minutes after the execution was started in circumstances that remain unclear and that were shielded from the witnesses because the Corrections Department drew the curtains. Clayton Lockett, an Oklahoma man convicted of murder, was administered a mix of drugs meant to anesthetize and kill him on April 29th. But he didn't die immediately. He writhed and spoke, and a curtain was pulled to hide the sight of his drawn-out death from most observers. Some suggest that while the story is nightmarish, a focus on particulars of how the state goes about killing people implies an unacceptable concession that killing is something the state has a right to do. That's one debate, but there's more to the case of Clayton Lockett than the state doing slowly what it intended to do quickly. And what went on before April 29th is as important as the events of that day. Dahlia Lithwick writes about courts and the law for Slate. She joins us now by phone from Virginia. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you so much for having me. Well, some people may say, while it's not to be wished for, it's not a bad thing to disabuse people of the idea that execution can ever be clinical or tidy or painless. But the death penalty is the law in Oklahoma as elsewhere, and in most places, the clinical-sounding lethal injection is how it's done. 
What has been changing in the lethal injection field, if you will, that's meaningful here? Well, I think you nailed exactly the the paradox, which is we used to hang people in the town square. You know, it used to be that it wasn't meant to be clinical. It was meant to be a gruesome public spectacle. You know, I think in a deep way, when we went from executing people at noon to executing people at midnight, I think that's quite symbolic of all the ways that we've tried to make it look like it's really just a medical procedure. But we have a couple of problems. One is... A lot of these procedures preclude doctors and other medical professionals from being involved because the Hippocratic Oath doesn't allow doctors and people who promise to save lives and protect lives to be involved. So frequently you have these uh, lethal injection protocols are administered by correction officers, not doctors. So that's one piece of the problem. You're doing what looks like an operation, but it's not necessarily being done by physicians. But the much more profound problem has been that since 2011, the states who use the three-drug so-called cocktail uh, lethal injection cocktail have been unable to get some of their drugs. First of all, American manufacturers stopped making them. And then much more urgently for the states, European manufacturers really said, we're not going to supply these drugs to you if they're going to be used to kill people. So quite literally, the supply dried up. And after 2011, a lot of the states that still have capital punishment turned to a whole bunch of other ways and tactics to get these drugs. And that has proven extremely problematic. And part of, or as a result of how problematic it has been, there's been kind of a veil of secrecy drawn around just how and where those drugs come from. Well, that's almost the most important part of the story. One gets kind of caught up in the Clayton Lockett piece of it and how awful it was. But the truth is that several states, Georgia, Louisiana, Missouri, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Texas, have quite literally dropped a veil of almost perfect secrecy over their lethal injection protocols. In fact, the court in Georgia will even protect their protocols from the judicial branch. They won't even let the judges scrutinize it. And so what you have is overwhelmingly where they go are these lightly regulated laboratories that are called compounding pharmacies. Batches differ from one to another. The pharmacies are, are often unregulated or underregulated. So the lawyers for folks who are about to be subject to lethal injection not entirely unreasonably say, where are these drugs coming from? What are you using? You're using new combinations of new drugs that we've never heard of. They've often never been tried the protocol that was tried on Clayton Lockett had never been attempted in Oklahoma. And so what the lawyers are saying is, look, certainly lethal injection and capital punishment are the law, as you said, but it's also the law that the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. And when you're, in effect, experimenting on people uh, on the night of their execution, that can't be right. And what happened in Oklahoma really bore that out. And in the Lockett case... The defense indeed challenged, as you report, challenged that secrecy. But then what happened? The court even ordered a stay of the execution. But tell us what happened after that. Well, this is the other big story that got a little bit hidden in all the interest in the execution itself. The big story to, to me was that the judicial branch did exactly what it was meant to do. So um, attorneys for both Lockett and Charles Warner, who was scheduled to be um, executed that night, and here I should just stipulate, because this is important, the way the story was told, they were 
clearly guilty of what they did. They committed heinous crimes. Mm -hmm. Nobody disputes that they did it. They had effective counsel. There's no charge of prosecutorial misconduct. So let's, I think, just be very, very clear that nobody is defending these two killers. But their lawyers came to the courts and said the secrecy that Oklahoma has shrouded the lethal injection system in really is problematic. And they prevailed. A district court actually said, you know what, this is sufficiently worrisome that in March a district court said, I want to look over the protocol and I want to make sure... This isn't cruel and unusual. And here it kind of explodes into this judicial controversy, um, which is that there's two courts in Oklahoma. It's a strange system. There's one that hears criminal appeals. There's one that hears civil appeals. In effect, what happened is the Oklahoma Supreme Court took jurisdiction. They said, even though the other court is technically in charge, we are the Oklahoma Supreme Court. We're very, very concerned about this. We're going to stay the execution for a little while, kick it back to the other court, and figure out what this protocol is, and and, and just give these attorneys the, the certainty that we're not experimenting for the first time on a prisoner. And the very next day, Mary Fallon, the governor of Oklahoma, simply issued a press release saying the Supreme Court acted outside its constitutional authority, she overrode the Supreme Court, and she reinstated the execution. So this is really a question of separation of powers, of judicial authority, of judicial independence. And the other thing that happened the next day, which is quite worrisome if you worry about judicial independence, is that a Republican member of the Oklahoma House of Representatives began to seek to impeach all five of the state Supreme Court justices who had voted for the stay. So, in effect, what, what Oklahoma decided was, we don't care what the Supreme Court ruled, we're going to impeach those justices and we won't have a Supreme Court problem anymore. The Supreme Court then backed down. They said, you know what, you're right. Let's put the execution back on the calendar, and then the botched execution happened. And they even dropped their concerns about the secrecy. And there's no reason for the secrecy. That's the important point. The secrecy doesn't promote some other goal, and what it does tend to end up creating is executions like this one. We had one in Ohio in January that was very similar, another one in Oklahoma in January where the prisoner suffered what seems to have been terrific pain. Obviously, there is an irony in the fact that, you know, we're trying to kill people and they die and we say something went wrong. But if in the act of executing someone and trying to do it as humanely as possible, we're also quite systemically allowing people to suffer really needless, horrific pain, then we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing here and is there a way to correct it? Uh-oh, what are we doing here? Okay, what do we do? Uh-oh, what are we doing here? Okay, what do we do? Uh-oh, what are we doing here? Okay, what shall we do? Uh-oh, what are we doing here? Okay, what do we do? Some things are above politics. Even some things that are done by government just don't stop for political things. Like, say, on January 17, 1995, when the great state of Texas was swearing in a brand new governor. That day, George W. Bush was sworn in as Texas governor. He gave his inaugural address. 
And on that exact same day, the state of Texas also went forward with the execution of a man who was mentally retarded. That was the state's own assessment of him. Look, Mr. Marquez's lawyers presented evidence that he was mentally retarded. When he was 25, Mr. Marquez had difficulty counting money, and according to a test given to him by a state-appointed psychologist, he thought the five largest cities in the United States were New York, New Orleans, Montana, Oregon, and Wisconsin. That's what he said when he was asked what were the five largest cities in the country. The state of Texas did not dispute any of this. A Texas district court, in ruling on one of Mr. Marquez's appeals, found that he was, quote, mildly mentally retarded with an intelligence quotient of 65 to 70 compared with a normal IQ of about 100. And I know that IQ tests and the phrase mental retardation are both problematic, uh, but from a legal perspective, they are very specifically defined. And an IQ score of 70 or below that is generally the legal cutoff for mental retardation in a legal context, what we might otherwise call intellectual disability. 70 or below. They killed a man with an IQ of 65 to 70 on the day that George W. Bush was first sworn in as Texas governor. And that wasn't enough. In 1997, under George W. Bush, they also killed a guy whose IQ was somewhere between 58 and 69. A couple years later, he did it again. Uh, they killed a guy whose IQ had tested as low as 64. And Texas wasn't the only state killing people who it said were mentally retarded. But Texas killed enough of them under George W. Bush that it did become a national issue in his run for the presidency in 2000. Uh, and when he won the presidency in 2000, it continued to be an issue. Uh, ahead of his first trip to Europe as president, reporters asked the new president, George W. Bush, about that issue from his days in Texas. That ended up spawning this headline that you, you just really never want to see. Presidential aides clarify Bush's stance on executing the retarded. So the president said, when reporters asked him about it, he said, quote, we should never execute someone who is retarded. But that was an issue for the administration because, of course, George W. Bush had done that a whole bunch of times. And his successor as Texas governor, Rick Perry, look at this headline. Rick Perry, when President Bush was answering those questions, he had just, Rick Perry had just vetoed a bill in Texas that would have banned executing retarded people in Texas. The legislature passed a ban on that, and Rick Perry vetoed the ban. I'm vetoing House Bill 236. Um, now let me explain why. House Bill 236 is not about whether to execute mentally retarded capital murders. We do not in Texas. Oh yes you do, Texas. You did so over and over and over again. Uh, but that veto happened in, in 2001. And honestly, I just have to say from a personal perspective, that is one of the more amazing headlines any of us will ever see in our entire lives. Ban on execution of the retarded is vetoed in Texas. It's like if any of us ever get to talk to St. Peter at the Pearly Gates, one of the strings of questions from him is going to be, are you American? Okay, were you alive on June 18, 2001? Can you explain your own behavior with regard to this headline, please? Personal aside. In any case, um, that was 2001. The following year, almost exactly one year later, June 20th, 2002, that was when the United States Supreme Court ruled that no, it actually in America is not constitutional to execute people who are that intellectually disabled. 
adopting the conventional definition of an IQ score lower than roughly 70, uh, the court said that Eighth Amendment of the Constitution prohibits the legal execution of anybody with that level of intellectual disability. If the law considers you to be mentally retarded, they cannot legally kill you in any state in the nation. There's been a lot of national attention in the last few days to the execution that Texas was planning on carrying out tonight. Um, Texas still kills more of its prisoners than any other state in the nation. Rick Perry hit the milestone of having killed 250 people uh, all the way back in 2012, and he has kept up the pace ever since then. But today's planned execution in Texas was supposed to be the first one anywhere in the country since two weeks ago the neighboring state of Oklahoma tried to call off an execution that it had already started when things went somehow horribly wrong. They started the lethal injection using drugs that the state obtained from unknown sources that it wouldn't disclose. Something went wrong with how the drugs were administered. The man they were trying to kill writhed and strained and spoke and gasped and reared his head. They eventually called off the execution, they closed the blinds to the assembled witnesses, and then they said he died of a heart attack 43 minutes after the injections had started, uh, but after they had said that the execution would be stopped. Tonight in Texas was supposed to be the first execution anywhere in the country since that happened two weeks ago in Oklahoma. And like Oklahoma, Texas refuses to disclose the source of the drugs that it is using to kill people or to, to allow any independent testing or verification of what they're using and in what dosage. They've kept it totally secret. The man who was scheduled to be put to death in Texas tonight asked federal courts to stop or at least delay his execution on those grounds about the drugs. And even though one district court judge said in his ruling on the matter that the, quote, horrific narrative of what went wrong in Oklahoma should occasion, quote, sober reflection on the manner in which this nation administers the ultimate punishment, even though the district court ruling had included that language, uh, the appeals court today refused to stop tonight's Texas execution on the basis of Texas keeping the drug secret. And the question of whether or not Oklahoma's disaster with their secret drugs has implications for other states. Interestingly, though, just a couple of hours after that, after that court ruled that they weren't going to stop the execution on the basis of the drugs question, the same court did stop the execution in Texas tonight for a totally different reason. In March 2010, Texas Governor Rick Perry made three appointments to something called the Texas Board of Examiners of Psychologists. It's basically the state agency that regulates the practice of psychology in Texas. And one of the psychologists who Governor Perry appointed to that statewide board was just able to do a full professional psychological evaluation of the man who Texas was scheduled to kill tonight. Her report cites evidence that the man cannot tell time he cannot read a gas gauge in a car. He cannot understand money or basic measurements. The psychologist did a full-scale IQ testing of the man, declared him to be mentally retarded. She found that he had a, quote, full-scale IQ of 69. And by virtue of the United States Supreme Court ruling from more than a decade ago, that should stop him from being executed, even in Texas. Because of the Supreme Court telling Texas and every other state in the, in the nation that they had to stop executing people who were that intellectually disabled. That ruling came down in 2002, and because of that ruling, this man now should not be legally executable in Texas or anywhere. And what is remarkable and what is very Texas about this story today is that the reason this finding had to happen so late, the, real, the, the reason this ruling today stopped this man's execution only a few hours before it was going to start, is because Texas had in its files three other IQ tests 
for this guy that basically showed the same results, that showed him at or below the threshold under which the state shouldn't have been allowed to kill him. This is from today's ruling, quote, the state never disclosed that it was in possession of evidence of three intelligent tests suggesting that Mr. Campbell was intellectually disabled. Texas had those tests in their own state records showing that under their own definition, he's mentally retarded, but they denied that they had those tests in their possession when his lawyers asked for them. They denied that they existed. They wouldn't hand them over until now at the very last minute. And now at the last screeching instant, Texas was finally told by a federal court that they have got to stop with this and they cannot kill this guy tonight. And so now, this guy, who the state of Texas secretly knew to be mentally retarded, he will not be the first execution in the country since the horror movie that happened in Oklahoma two weeks ago, the execution they tried to stop after it was already started. And now two questions remain tonight. What will be the next execution after the horror show in Oklahoma? And did the horror show in Oklahoma change anything? President Obama said after what happened in Oklahoma, he wants a national review of executions. That federal judge ruling in this next case in Texas, the execution that was supposed to go through tonight, he said what happened in Oklahoma should be cause for sober reflection on the way prisons kill people in our country now. Is that happening? Is anything different now? Think about what used to be. I'm not doing all that well. Facing me, as an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. A shocking number of death row inmates are possibly innocent, and that's according to a new study that was done uh, by researchers that feel very passionately about this particular topic. Uh, the name of the study is Rate of False Conviction of Criminal Defendants Who Are Sentenced to Death. And what the researchers found... Um, and there were four authors who actually did this research. They reviewed the outcomes of the 7,482 death sentences handed down from 1973 to 2004. Of that group, 117, or 1.6%, were exonerated. So that's a significant amount. 117 people could have been murdered by our country for a crime that they did not commit. So that's important to keep in mind. But the actual number of those people who should be exonerated could, could be double. Now, more than double the percentage of capital defendants who were exonerated during more than three decades that were studied. That means innocent people were languishing behind bars. Now, the reason why that's the case is because oftentimes people who are um, facing the death penalty or have been sentenced to the death penalty and they know they're innocent, will fight to have their sentence changed from capital punishment to life behind bars. And as soon as they get life behind bars, they give up the fight. They're like, at least I get to keep my life, yeah, even though I'm going to be behind bars. 
since they give up that fight, they never get to be exonerated, like those who actually did fight for their innocence, or at least had uh, the support from those from the Innocence Project. They've done wonderful work when it comes to that. Now, more than 200 other prisoners could have been cleared during those three decades that were studied uh, by these researchers from the University of Michigan. And also from 1973 to 2004, more than 35% of death row inmates were uh, spared from capital punishment but remained incarcerated. So what do you guys uh, think about this? I mean, this is a topic we talk about on TYT quite a bit. We're, I mean, Jenk and I are both against uh, the death penalty for this reason uh, specifically. And it's really hard to defend the death penalty when you have this kind of data. I'm, I'm against the death penalty for that reason, but for not, not only because people are innocent, they kill, the state kills innocent people, there couldn't be a worse thing than that, but I, the bigger reason is because if you ask people the ideology behind the death penalty, they say it acts as a deterrent to other people committing horrend, horrendous crimes, which is not true, right? The science doesn't bear that out, that the death penalty has, and in fact, when someone is executed in a state, the number of murders rises uh, in the month following that execution. So what we're really doing, the real reason why we have the death penalty in America is revenge, right? So that's what it satisfies some, the uh, dark side of our consciousness, which is revenge. And that's what it teaches that. And you know, it teaches that violence actually is a way to deal with some of our problems. You got a problem, you can kill someone and that'll solve that problem. And it also teaches revenge. And this teaches disrespect for the law because you call, oh, we're killing. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that the overwhelming majority of those people were black, right, that are on death row, and so it's just, uh, that's why I'm against the death penalty. I don't know, how about you, Desi? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I am against it as well, not just because, you know, the data shows that the law is unequally applied, especially the death penalty. Um, it also shows that depending on what state you're in, what district you're in, uh, that the composition of your jury, you know, how competent your counsel is, you know, that all of these are factors that go into these death penalty cases, and until you can have a good uh, legal representation across the board in all of these cases, then the state, you know, cannot say for sure that without a reasonable doubt that you were the one that committed this crime. And obviously this data shows that no, that's not the case. Just because a jury says so doesn't mean it's true. Um, and, you know, to me, I'm also against it, not just on the evidentiary basis, but the state should not be in the business of killing its own people. Yeah. Period. End of story. That's an authoritarian government tool. It should not be used in the United States. I just feel yeah. like it sends the wrong message. Like, we are going to kill you for killing someone else. No, it's, I mean, I understand the idea behind it. Right. It's the idea that, oh, you are such, or this convicted criminal is such an awful human being that they should not be allowed to live on this planet anymore, even if they're incarcerated and can't hurt anybody anymore. Yeah, I covered all this. I know, I, I just did a short. Well, Someone's feisty wow. today, Sam. Well, yes, those are all the tangible reasons that I think are completely legitimate, but I, I agree with your last point, just the philosophical point that I don't think the state has the right to kill anyone. Uh, it's, we, have, we have enough of a screwed up prison system in the first place, so even adding to that, that the state could kill somebody, it, it accomplishes nothing. It shows that it's not a deterrent, right? We murder murderers because we say it's a deterrent, but we try to close our eyes to the fact that someone's murdering someone, right? That's what's happening. They call it an execution. It's a murder. We try to close it. But we don't do that with other crimes. We don't burn down the house of an arsonist. We don't rape a rapist, right? Because we don't want to become those things. And that's the thing also about torture. People think that the only person damaged 
during a torture session is the person being tortured, but it also damages the torturer, right? You become a depraved torturer now, just like the person who executes someone becomes an executioner. You're now an executioner, which is, and no one, people can't, that's such a deplorable thought in people's minds that they have the three different buttons when yeah, you press the, so they don't even let you know who's going to be the person killing them in the firing squad. They have, not everybody gets a bullet. So that's such a horrible thing that, but yet we're still going to fucking do it, right? I mean, if that doesn't tell you how bad it is, that we don't even want the person doing it to know they're doing it, then we shouldn't be doing it at all. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, what you can do to fix the system. The recent botched execution of Oklahoma death row inmate Clayton Lockett reignited the death penalty debate in the media. Because the European countries where we previously obtained drugs for lethal injection refuse to be party to cruel and unusual punishment, states and executioners have been winging it with unproven cocktails. The governor of Oklahoma, Mary Fallon, has done nothing to calm the concern around improvising the procedure with her subsequent cold, unapologetic reaction. As Stephanie Minsimer plainly put it in her piece for Mother Jones, quote, When Oklahoma effectively tortured Lockett to death last Tuesday, Fallon changed the debate over the death penalty in a way that previous botched executions, evidence of racial disparities, innocence claims, bad lawyering, or even proof of the pointlessness of executing the intellectually disabled has been unable to do. Fallon, a Republican no less, has in one day managed to illustrate starkly why no other Western nation features state killing as a criminal punishment, unquote. The statement issued by the governor's office simply said, quote, Lockett had his day in court. The state lawfully carried out a sentence of death. Justice was served, unquote. Whether Lockett was guilty or not, this publicly horrific display of the death penalty's cruelty has sparked renewed interest in ensuring that those sentenced to endure it are not tragically innocent, making this the perfect time to get involved with the Innocence Project. You don't have to be a lawyer or a politician to advocate for the wrongly accused and convicted and help change the narrative in our country, where cultural amnesia allows names like Troy Davis to vanish into the ether with inexcusable speed. Check out the What Can I Do tab at innocenceproject.org for their top 10 ways to join the movement. Opportunities range from hosting a local educational event to helping improve local policy around wrongful convictions to connecting with one of the three dozen organizations around the country in the Innocence Network. Everyone can help by simply following at Innocence on Twitter and liking the Innocence Project on Facebook and spreading the stories as they develop. Personal narratives are what change our culture. Become part of the solution by amplifying the voices of the exonerated and the wrongfully convicted. Dispelling myths and putting human faces on those locked away out of sight is a crucial component to bringing justice to our justice system. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage 
Support for the death penalty among Americans is lower than at any point in the last 40 years. You have to go back 40 years to get to a point where Americans are this negative about the death penalty. This is according to a new Gallup poll that was out yesterday. Raw Story has a good summary of this. Support for the death penalty at a four-decade low, although most Americans, three out of five, still favor it. Sixty percent say they back capital punishment for convicted killers. This is the lowest figure dating back to November of 1972, when the death penalty had a slightly lower 57 percent support from Americans. By 1994, support for the death penalty had increased to about 80 percent. And since then, it's just been on a steady decline. 44% of respondents to the Gallup survey said the death penalty isn't being imposed often enough. Interesting. Of the 50 American states, 32 implement the death penalty. 18 plus Washington, D.C. have abolished it. Lewis, before we get delve more deeply into this, the number, 60% roughly, is that High, low? Are you surprised that it? What's your reaction to the numbers? I guess. Well, I think we're just seeing a really slow, um, a slow change, right? I mean, uh, so I guess I'm not surprised. I think uh, this is a trend that will continue. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully we can get rid of it within uh, within ten years everywhere. But um, I'm not sure about that. Well, if you even look within the U.S. at the 32 states that have the death penalty. Over one-third of U.S. capital punishment deaths have occurred in Texas, which is five times as many as in any other state. And then you have Virginia, Oklahoma, and Florida. But after those first four states, the other 28 aren't contributing much in terms of the death penalty. It really is focused incredibly in these four states. Now, if you look around the world, Lewis, if you look at Amnesty International, they say 140 countries have abolished the death penalty. And one of the, one of the conversations we often have around the death penalty is the U.S. is one of very few countries at our level of development that still has the death penalty and doesn't have single-payer health care, and that this should really tell us something. And I was looking today at the list of what countries have the death penalty and what countries don't, and it really says a lot, Lewis. Take a listen to this. Which countries allow the death penalty? Here's a few. Afghanistan, Bahrain, Bangladesh, Chad, Botswana, China, Congo, Cuba, Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Iran, Iraq, Qatar, Yemen, Sudan, Syria, Uganda, Somalia. Who doesn't allow the death penalty, Lewis? Austria, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Ireland, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, my home country of Argentina, Portugal, South Africa, Spain, Switzerland, Turkey. Are you seeing something here, Lewis, where it seems almost like the U.S. is an outlier, in a sense, in the list of countries that have the death penalty? Oh, definitely. Uh, I just, I think it's a result of that uh, hardcore conservative mentality, and that's the only reason it's persisting in, in the states it is. Well, the that's exactly the point I was hoping you would make, which is this is not so, we could say that it's related to poverty and development. We could have that conversation and say the U.S. is an outlier, but it's more interesting to look at it in a different way, which is that conservative ideology where even if we say that 
countries around the world are generally speaking more liberal than than the US a lot of these countries including Afghanistan Iran and Iraq Yemen Qatar uh, some of the African countries have different different types of conservatism some religious based some uh, based on other areas of society but it is really this extreme conservatism that that seems to be what is the link there and when you look at many of the countries that have abolished the death penalty you see a very different uh, it's just a totally different culture and lifestyle yeah I think that's really the connection we need to draw from this it's it's mostly just an ideological one what why do we still have this uh, ex the executing innocent people, the high cost of the death penalty, sometimes prolonging victim suffering through multiple appeals to figure out what exactly will be the ultimate penalty for a perpetrator of a crime, no evidence that it deters crime, totally arbitrary in terms of when and where it is applied, disproportionately used against minorities, just to name a few reasons why it may be time to get rid of the death penalty. Hopefully that happens. Hopefully these numbers are indicative of that. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know change is going to come. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. You know, it's becoming clearer and clearer. I don't know if you saw this piece in Salon. Um, some really good reporting. It's becoming clearer by the day that Texas Governor Rick Perry killed an innocent man. Ten years ago, Texas executed Cameron Todd Willingham, who was convicted in 1992 on arson charges. Uh, the complaint was that he had set a 1991 fire in Corsicana, Texas, that killed his three children. But now newly uncovered evidence suggests that Willingham, who maintained his innocence until his death, was in fact an innocent man. Willingham's original conviction relied on two major pieces of evidence, an analysis of the fire by arson investigators and the testimony of a jailhouse informant. And in the years since Willingham was executed, the arson investigation that was the key pillar of his case has been totally discredited. Questions have been raised over the analysis done by the arson investigators and the science that was used in the case. It now looks like it was just a tragic house fire. And as for the jailhouse informant who allegedly overheard Willingham confess to the crime, new evidence suggests that that informant was offered a deal by the prosecution in return for his testimony. The judge had earlier denied cutting a deal, but now the deal's been found, and it's in the judge's own handwriting. So it's looking increasingly more like Rick Perry executed an innocent man. And not just an innocent man, 
a father who discovered his house on fire and was unable to save his three daughters, who was grieving and distraught and was then thrown in jail and accused of intentionally burning his own house down to kill his kids, which he almost certainly didn't do. He was just a grieving father who's now been killed by Rick Perry. That's pretty grisly. But even worse, there's more and more proof that the death penalty itself does not even work to keep people from killing other people. Proponents of the death penalty say that, you know, well, it's not perfect. It's a strong deterrent to murder. They're wrong. In fact, it's the other way around. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, between 1990 and 2010, 20-year block of time, the murder rate in states that didn't have the death penalty was consistently lower than the murder rate in states that do have the death penalty. According to a 2009 survey, the world's leading criminologists, 88% say that the death penalty does not lower homicide rates. Meanwhile, according to Amnesty International, more than 130 death row inmates have been released because of wrongful convictions since 1973. A guy named Seth Penalver is one of those 103. Penalver was arrested in 1994 for murdering three people. There was no physical evidence linking him to the murders, and only other evidence, and the only other evidence the police had was a poor quality video that they said showed Penalver. Penalver was ultimately released in 2012 after he was acquitted of all charges. It turns out the police were wrong. He was innocent. But the state of Florida nearly killed him and would have if newly discovered evidence hadn't led to a new trial. But, frankly, we shouldn't even need facts or statistics or wrongful conviction stories to prove that the death penalty is wrong. I mean, here's the bottom line. As a society, when we kill people, we become killers ourselves. We coarsen our society. We become accustomed to murder. Albeit murder by state, it's still murder. Rick Perry is on the record saying that Cameron Todd Willingham was a monster. But it's increasingly looking like Rick Perry is the real monster. Not only has he put a likely innocent man to death, he's continuing the use of an inhumane and immoral process that doesn't even meet its own goals. We in America, Americans have always talked about, I mean, all the way back to, to Pastor, what's his name, you know, the, 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 the pilgrim pastor, that we should be a shining city upon the hill. He actually said a city on the hill. Reagan added shining to it. But, but in any case, and Kennedy quoted him, not Reagan, but he quoted the pilgrim minister whose name I can't remember. But anyhow, but we can't possibly be that. We can't possibly be seen that way by the world or even by ourselves if we continue perpetrating state-operated murder. The eyes of the world are on us. We should be leading by example. And if we're going to do that, we need to get rid of the death penalty once and for all. from Pittsburgh. Uh, I've wanted to call in for a while about a lot of topics, but I wanted to comment on some of the recent discussion of respectability politics when it comes to the African-American community. 
Full disclosure, I am a white male in my 20s, but I took an African-American history class in college. I do not claim to be an expert on the subject, but I think some historical context has been left out, and hopefully we can add that to the discussion. Um, in your recent episode on racism, you played a clip from This Week in Blackness where the hosts discussed whether either their parents or grandparents' generation believed in this idea of respectability politics more so than young black people, or I guess white people, uh, might do now. Just to, to, to be clear, I, I want to make sure we define respectability politics as at least the way that I understand it is it means encouraging members of some oppressed minority or oppressed group to conform to social norms set by the majority group to gain the, that, the respect of the that majority or that more powerful group. Um, and a recent caller pointed out that Magic Johnson's multi-million dollar fortune did not gain him any more respect to from the racist owner of the LA Clippers, Donald Sterling. So I was mulling over this topic the other day after listening to your show, and I realized that perhaps why there might be some generational divide, or at least where this ideology of respectability from past generations might have come from. In African American history class, we learned about a lot of historical movements within the broader black liberation movement, as some people define it, uh, some historians define it, uh, that could be described in terms of respectability. Particularly notable, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's campaign to support the so-called talented tenth. In other words, what he wanted to do was propagate stories of the wealthiest, most educated, most intellectual 10% of the black community. Similarly, shortly after the Civil War, a community of freed slaves in Richmond, Virginia, penned a letter to President Andrew Johnson, and it was pleading for the president to have the federal government enforce the, the right to vote, enforce the right for them to freely move about without uh, police harassment, and it was pretty much steeped in sort of respectability and wealth arguments. So I'm just going to read a quick segment from it. So I'm reading from uh, the textbook Major Problems in African American History, uh, which is a collection of documents and essays edited by Thomas C. Holt and Elsa Barkley Brown. Uh, we represent a population of more than 20,000 colored people, including Richmond and Manchester, who have been distinguished for their good behavior as slaves and free men, as well as for their high moral, moral and Christian character. More than 6,000 of our people are members of good standing of Christian churches, and nearly our whole population constantly attends divine services. Among us, there are at least 2,000 men who are worth from 200 to 500 dollars, 200 who have property valued from $1,000 to $5,000, and a number who are worth from $5,000 to $20,000. None of our people are in alms house, and when we were slaves, the aged and infirmed who were turned away from the homes of hard masters who had been enriched by their toil, our benevolent societies supported them while they, while they lived and buried them when they died, and comparatively few of us have found it necessary to ask for government rations which have been so bountifully bestowed upon the unrepented rebels of Richmond. The law of slavery severely punished those who taught us to read and write, but notwithstanding this, 3,000 of us can read, and at least 2,000 can read and write, and a large number of us are engaged in useful and profitable employment on our own account. 
as you can see, this letter is proclaiming their respectability. Now, I'm not trying to say that respectability politics are okay. I think that they're absolutely wrong. And I think that there's an important distinction between what Bill Cosby and Don Lemon and Bill O'Reilly have been saying about it than what the freed slaves of Richmond or what W.E.B. Du Bois said about it 100 years ago. These historical movements are, weren't telling black people what to do. They were proclaiming to the white world, to the you know, the majority group or the oppressive group what black people have done that they consider to be respectable or that they would think white people would think of as respectable. And I think it's this is some context that's useful to keep in mind. Um, another really great example of respectability politics um, that's early, I guess I would compared to now, uh, can be found in the 1984 film A Soldier's Story. Uh, I can't really tell you what it's about without spoiling the movie, but it's certainly a film worth watching, and if you're interested, I'm sure you can find the plot de details on Wikipedia. Anyway, thanks for your time, Jay, and thanks for producing a great show. Hey, this is Sonia from Minnesota, and uh, listening to your podcast on race and the term respectability politics, you know, that's a very fancy term for something that's a lot more basic and pervasive. Victim blaming. You're a person of color, you're queer, you're a woman, and you're discriminated against. You're beaten, you're raped, murdered. What were you doing? Where were you? What were you wearing? It's definitely your fault. There must have been something that you did that aggravated your assaultant. And that's the world we live in. It's never the fault of the person throwing the punch. That's all. Bye. Hi, this is Jeff in New York. Thanks, Jay, for acknowledging me recently. Yes, I regularly put up posts on my blog, theliberalcurmudgeon.com and credit Best of the Left. This is not just to help Best of the Left, but it's also because your material is so good that I want to share it with my readers. Not long ago, I wrote a piece, Best of the Left Brings the Best of Liberal Media, and anyone can look it up on my blog. I wanted to do my part to spread the word about the show. All listener-sponsored shows must continue to draw support in order to, to survive. So, I'm making a call to action here to every listener. Go to bestoftheleft.com, click on the membership tab, and become a member. If your membership is up, renew it. Don't just benefit from Best of the Left. Don't take it for granted that it will always be here. Think about what you get from Best of the Left. Every three days, you get perspectives you won't get from the corporate media. If you can afford a computer an iPod or a smartphone to listen to the show, you probably can afford a membership. I understand that some may be under financial difficulties, but if you can contribute, do so. How much should you contribute? As much as you can. When would be a good time? Right now. You just listened to an enlightening, humorous, thought-provoking episode. Now is a good time to go to bestoftheleft.com, click on the membership tab, and contribute. You'll feel good about it. Thanks.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So just a couple of real quick uh, sort of programming notes. Memorial Day weekend is coming up. My parents are going to come visit. You know, I got to do the whole tour guide in the city thing. And so the normal thing to do would be to take an episode off over the holiday weekend. It's a totally normal thing. But because of just a weird scheduling fluke, it actually makes more sense, even though it doesn't sound like it makes sense. Then I'm going to take Thursday's show off. The, the, the next coming show is going to be an amazing, hand-picked, awesome rerun, one of the best shows I've done in the last year. So not to be missed, but not a new episode that's going to be on Thursday, and then there will be a new episode over the holiday weekend when, by all rights, I shouldn't be working at all. I know it doesn't make sense, but it, it sort of makes sense uh, from where I am sitting. Uh, so that, that's what's coming up. And, and and then secondly, I just want to, you know, thanks to Jeff for the heartfelt endorsement of supporting the show. I, I certainly appreciate that. I want to tell everyone what the next bonus episode is going to be about. I, I mentioned that I would probably move over, you know, any further comments on, on polyamory that came in would get moved over to the members show. If you've been following that conversation, you won't be surprised to hear that Raul from Hawaii called back in uh, it, with his final follow-up to sort of continuing to fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the conversation we were trying to have. And that may go into the member show at, at some point, but not immediately, because I'm going to do my best to relate a really interesting conversation I, I had with my brother the other night. The conversation started, sort of innocently enough, as a dissection of the possible consequences of the precedent set by Obamacare, which empowers the government to dictate that all citizens must buy a you know, good or service from a private entity. Uh, not through taxation, but through, you know, your own dollars. So that's how it started. But then it sort of moved into uh, the, the concept I've been pondering recently, which is more to do with the nature of self. And then uh, that slid right into the concept of free will, which then also somehow wound its way around to the definition of racism. So it, it was a it was a fascinating conversation. It had some, uh, some interesting... Uh, twists and turns, and I'm going to do my best to relate that to the members. So for access to all that, of course, you can do exactly what uh, Jeff just encouraged you to do. Head to bestoftheleft.com and go to the members page, and that's where you can you know, support the show, which is not only greatly appreciated, but also how the show survives. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those, of course, who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That helps as well. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories and Stop.